0: to episode 4 of series 3 of some Essex lad and a Paralympian. Well, so far Tony Gray Thompson, Nathan Maguire and Jack Eyes have all been on the pod this series. And today we're lucky enough to be joined by current wheelchair basketball world championships silver medalist and under 25 world champ Sophie Carrigill. Now Sophie's story is pretty incredible. Um, in 2010 she was paralyzed from the waist down after a car crash in the States but has since carried the Olympic torch at London 2012, captained Great Britain, competed at Rio 2016, and has been an ever-present voice in improving disability, representation, inclusivity and accessibility. Sophie, um, pleasure to have you on. Um, there's a quote actually from that, you know, when you've been talking about that crash. Um, you said it's now 10 years, and this is last year with the BBC, Said it's now 10 years since the accident, and I've come out the other side much stronger, much more powerful, much more determined. I believe in how strong I am, and that's something I might not have felt if I hadn't had the accident. I can look adversity in the eye and say, Come at me because I can deal with you. Um, I guess whenever you describe the crash to people, that's the first thing that they'll pretty go to because it is kind of that, it's something which is not really going to happen in their lives a lot. And it's kind of a big moment where they'll go, Whoa. Um, You know, to have that, I guess, and to then to be able to look back at it like that now. It's a long journey, isn't it? Overall, I guess.
1: It is, yeah. I mean, 10 years is a long time. No matter what's happened to you, your life is going to have changed in some sort of way. Um, and it's just nice to be able to reflect back. And like you say, that quote and everything you said, thank you so much for that introduction. It's almost a bit like pinch me moment sometimes, because I can't really believe all the things I've achieved in that time. And I am, and I don't think you should ever be ashamed to say. This, but I am really proud of myself and everything that I've achieved to date, and hopefully will continue to do so. Uh,
0: you know, I guess as I said, you know, people will kind of look at you, and now they will say, you know, that you know, she has competed at Rio, she has captained Great Britain, but pretty, I'd say, am I right in saying twenty eleven? You know, just before London, twenty twelve, where you carried that Olympic torch that you know that the crash was kind of the defining point in your life and that was really the big talking point to go to
1: oh absolutely yeah it was still on my mind daily you know it was a real traumatic thing that happened um you know and I had life-saving surgery I'm very lucky to be here um and I guess I take every day I sort of still live my life with that Uh, every day I take every day as it comes and I'm grateful for every day but but yeah, it definitely defined me early on, um, and like you say, was the the talking point about my life, about my recovery, about how I was doing at school, and um, you know things like that. And it was how she recovering, how she you know getting back to herself, I suppose. Whereas actually, my disability doesn't define me anymore. It is just who I am, um, and I think that comes with time. It comes with acceptance and um, believing that, though you know, the only barriers that you ever that you ever face are really ones that are are in your own mind. I think, um, you know, there's always ways to do something and, and achieve something. And I just think it's about finding different ways to maybe do that now.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, looking back, I guess, you know, that event in the States, and I mean, if anyone hasn't heard of, you know, what you had to go through in hospital afterwards, you know, uh, you know puncture both of your lungs, organ damage, um, you know, removal of spleen and, and gallbladder fracture, of a vertebrate which left you paralysed I mean it's it's a remarkable kind of event but also i say the story is pretty after that is even more remarkable than the event itself I mean do you remember the day well overall or is it something that you can of remember kind of afterwards more so than actually the event itself?
1: Yeah it's funny really because I always wanted to remember I wish I could I don't have memories of the crash happening um I think that's probably a good thing um because it was quite traumatic um and I have no memory really until about two weeks afterwards uh, I was put into an induced coma just through uh, you know having lots of damage as you've mentioned um so really just you know you your mind sort of is irrelevant at the time whilst your body's trying to really stay alive so um I guess those the memories aren't important so your mind doesn't really remember those types of things if that makes sense don't know if I just rambled on loads then <laughs> but <laughs> no, yeah, the, yeah. It's, uh, it's a weird thing to to not remember what happened to you to ultimately <clears throat> be the thing that then changes your complete life um but like you say it did define me in those moments but now it's just it's just how I live and and ultimately the stories like you say that have Um, followed and the things the opportunities that I've had and the life that I've been able to lead because of that I wouldn't change Um, and and I love the life that I live now so um so yeah it's kind of a uh yeah bittersweet sort of thing happening I suppose.
0: I mean, was there kind of a moment that you remember in kind of hospital that you thought this is a serious situation? Because obviously you had the rehab when you got back. It was a long rehab that you were back in Wakefield after you got back. But was there a moment in the US where you thought, well, I've just been in a really big thing?
1: Yeah, I I don't actually ever think it really dawned on me how... And it probably still doesn't how bad it was and how close to dying I was. Obviously, I'm aware of that, but it's very weird to think about yourself in that situation, I suppose. Um, but because of the coma um, and because it was induced, it you know, I was just really on high level drugs um, at the time. I sort of was still in taking a lot of information. So I never really had to have that conversation when I came around about, oh, uh, you're not going to be able to walk again or you're paralysed or things like that, that were those like heartbreaking moments that you see in films that never really had to happen because I just sort of had this awareness already that something massive had changed. Um, I knew I couldn't feel my legs. I knew that nurses were sort of having to turn me and clean me. And, you know, it went back to being like a child where you were looked after 24-7, and um, which as a 16-year-old girl was pretty um, hard to deal with really in those initial first few months. Um, but yeah, it was a, a sort of weird weird situation i suppose not having had that conversation but just being able to understand that that was the case and i guess really it was i was really quite ill and actually the spinal cord injury and um the sort of complications that go with that you know coming to terms with not being able to walk and and things like that were actually second to every other injury i had internally and that was actually just causing me a lot of pain a lot of discomfort I wasn't able to eat anything I tried to eat I was throwing up I was just being sick all the time it was grim like honestly so I think I think those moments were actually harder than um you know like getting into the chair for the first time and things like that I actually just went through the first probably six to eight months of rehab and recovery just wanting to be able to keep food down sort of adjust to my body's new way of working when they did all the surgery they sort of put me back together in as best way they could. It was definitely not normal and not what it was supposed to look like. Uh, obviously it's fully functioning and it's great. And I'm lucky that I've got a really healthy body now. Um, but at the time it was obviously rejecting all of that. So those moments were probably the hardest ones to just be like, God, I just wanna be able to eat like nice food. And I completely went off everything sweet, which was so unlike me, like I couldn't have chocolate. This Even the talk of like chocolate cake, was like just repulsed me
0: was there a reason why that was the case was it your body <laughs> certain organs which are damaged which you know, you know but that, that was, I, had an effect or
1: I got um my pancreas was damaged and I had some of that removed and obviously that's quite key in like your blood glucose and things like that. I'm not a scientist, so I don't, you know, if I'm wrong on that, don't, don't shoot me. Oh, <laughs> well, I'm not an expert
0: as well. My sister is, but I'm not, so... Uh,
1: well, um, but yeah, so maybe something to do with that, but also just to do with changes in your body, like affect what you can stand, I suppose, and the, all the anaesthetic that I had, that's proven to have a big effect on your body as well. So um, probably just a, a lot of things combined and my stomach settling down and, and things like that. So, so yeah, it was that really, that had the biggest impact on me because that had the the impact on my quality of life. Um, and then once I was able to sort of start eating again and get used to that, and then I guess started to, I'd already processed being in a chair um, because the illness, like the sickness was actually bothering me more than getting around in a chair. That was actually, the chair was providing me a bit of independence. So, um, so yeah, it was a, a weird sort of first like few months actually.
0: Yeah, like I, I, striking on that independent side, I mean, I guess, you know, growing up in, you know, Yorkshire, independence kind of goes hand in hand with people born in Yorkshire anyway, um, having Absolutely. been up there for uni. Um, but, you know, you yeah, had quite a sporty upbringing, you know, like netball, hockey, and tennis. I mean, like, it was kind of, were you kind of destined almost to be a part of sport with or without that accident at some point?
1: I think probably, yes. Sport was definitely the thing that came most naturally to me. Uh, Academically, I found that difficult. Uh, Not to say that I didn't do well because I've I've gone on to, I've got a master's degree now in sports psychology, which I'm really proud of. Um, But it doesn't come easy to me. It's the thing I've got to work hard at, whereas sport is almost a bit more natural. It's the thing that my body is good at, I suppose, you know, the hand-eye coordination skills, that kind of thing. Um, so, yes, maybe. And and I think probably before my accident, I definitely thought my route would be some sort of sports degree at university, potentially being a PE teacher, that kind of thing. Um, I played sport to a good level, but never good enough to take it on um, being professional. I would have loved that. That was the dream. I, I remember growing up as a kid watching the Olympics and thinking, like literally having conversations with my dad, like, what sport can I do that will get <laughs> me to the Olympics? And I was like literally nothing because I wasn't good enough in any area. So, But this was when I was like seven or eight. And I was like, if I start now, then I'll be able to do something well enough to get me there. Um, and obviously the silver lining of uh, me being in a car accident is that, yes, I, I did go to a Paralympic. So equally as amazing. Um, so, again, yeah, I was destined for it. Who knows?
0: I was about to say, was basketball ever a sport kind of before the accident growing up? Were you ever kind of really involved in that as well?
1: I'd never played honestly I'd never played a game I'd like I'd shot around a bit like in games lessons and things like that and but I played netball a lot so there's a lot of transferable skills there um but yeah never I'd never played it really growing up basketball was a boys sport I suppose and and I love that that's changing now and we're getting more women playing any sport you know that that gender difference is not as um I suppose not as evident in sport growing up now. I know it's still there and I'd love to see that change more but definitely for me basketball was just not something that we did at school so it wasn't really an option for me.
0: So what was it that kind of got you into basketball then? Was it because of London 2012? Because I know you know you're part of the Paralympic Inspiration Programme and I know you watched some of the matches at London 2012, was it just because of those matches that you wanted to kind of get into it at a high level or was it, you already got into it by that stage?
1: I had already started playing, yeah. So about a year after my accident happened, Um, I went on a like Outward Bounds course with the Backup Trust who are a charity that help people specifically with spinal cord injuries to rebuild their lives and regain their confidence and they did an amazing amazing job on me because I came back from that course it was in the Lake District it was a week away and it was like the first time leaving my parents again and like I mentioned, before, previous to that, it was like being looking at, being looked after like you were a child again. So regaining that independence, going away was quite a big thing. Um, so I went and pushed myself outside of my comfort zone massively that like I really didn't want to go. Uh, but came back like a completely new, revived person. Like my parents said, it's like we've got the old Sophie back. Because as soon as I got back, I was like, right, I want to do sport. I want to find something that's like you know, that I can do um, because this course had basically opened my eyes massively to everything that was still possible despite having a disability. It didn't mean you had to stop anything. It just meant finding different ways to do things. Um, So I just, I searched just for local disability sport in the area and luckily um, I was living in Leeds at the time so there was quite a few options. One was tennis um, which I'd tried initially um, but I'd played tennis religiously since I was like three, um, every week pretty much was playing tennis. And I found that really hard to adapt. It was the same sport, but it was so different. And I don't think mentally I was in a place to be able to accept that I was doing something the same, but everything I'd learned from such a young age had to be so different, like the double bounces and where you had to position yourself and the ready position and all things like that.
0: So like it's so not like, meant to be like this in the court, is it? So no, that's, that's, exactly. the, that's the idea.
1: Yeah so I sort of just I wasn't ready at that time. I've played tennis since and love it you know but early on I wanted something new that it wasn't I'd never done before. Um, so obviously basketball um, came up on my search and it was 10 minutes from my house which I'm really grateful for really thankful for um, that it was so easy to access and and I just went along and um, ultimately I, I, I fell in love with it but I was terrible to start like really I loved the competing and I loved going every week and trying to get better and improving. And I've got a very sort of determined mindset, I suppose, which kept me going back every week. Um but yeah, I started out being awful, like trying to dribble and push a wheelchair at the same time was just a whole new concept. Um, you say
0: you say it's 10 minutes from your house. Was was the basketball where was it? Was that at the Olympic Park or was that?
1: No, sorry. So this was when I was, this was in 2011. Um, So when I was living in Leeds, uh, my local local club was just down the road from me. Um, That's when I first started playing. So yeah, before the Paralympics in London had taken place. um, And so it was a few months after I'd first started that I'd actually started to get a little bit better at the sport. And I suppose a lot of the games that we went to were watched by GB coaches and things like that. Um, and they, I guess, like scouted me. I always find it weird saying that word, but I suppose that is. <laughs> you always hear that, like with footballers, like they get scouted. So I yeah. I got, I got noticed, I suppose, um, and asked to go along to one of the like women's like open sessions where the GB coaches were coaching and um, the the sessions over the weekend. I was
0: about to say, what's that like being scouted? Is it literally just being pulled to one side at the end of a session and saying, "We really"? Are impressed by you and we want you to kind of come to one of our sessions
1: yeah pretty much like I was a bit like I, I didn't even realize it was happening at the time but it did the women's coach at the time saw me playing um some junior games and I was like I had absolutely no inhibitions at the time because I didn't even know what I was doing at all so I was just playing like completely freely and I actually, I wish I sort of had that mindset now. Like, I have a lot more pressure on me and there's a lot more expectation to be good. Whereas at the time, there was absolutely no expectation. And I, I was playing out of my mind, you know, playing great basketball. Um, and uh, and the coach came up to me at the end and said, Are you, we want you to come to our next camp. Like, will you be available? And I was like, oh my God, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, like freaking out a bit. Like, oh my God, what's going on? Um, but actually, it was there when... Um, they said to me, if you keep working hard and you keep doing what you're doing, you've got a really good chance to be competing in Rio in 2016. So it was after that, really, that made me want to give it everything, make every decision possible to be an elite athlete. And, you know, that takes a lot of change in your lifestyle as well um, to fully commit to being an athlete. Um, But I was ready and I wanted to do it. And someone had given me that little nugget. And I was, I just wanted to grab it with both hands and, and ultimately that's, it's worked out.
0: You can have got a taster of what a Paralympic Games would be like, of course, you you know, you ended up watching, I think it's the women's quarter final, the, the GB yeah. lost there. But yeah. it was before that you got to carry the Olympic torch as well.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: like how did you get into that how, how yeah, was that, that experience
1: was, that was amazing um I loved that that was like my first little taste of I don't know how it happened but everybody when I was doing the torch and you got a little I don't know how long it was but 500 meters or something of carrying the torch and everybody on the side of the street wanted to come and watch and absolutely loved it and they all knew my name and I think afterwards I realized they'd gone the truck had gone out before saying who was coming up. So everyone was told who this person was coming up. And then I was like going down the street and all these people were shouting my name. And I was like, Oh my God, it's me. <laughs> you know, everyone knows me. And I just loved it. And I was like, Oh, I'm lapping this up. Um, uh, But I, I get, I got the opportunity because um, I was nominated by various people. My dad being one of them, I think, Um, as you could do to carry the torch, just, I guess, for, Um, you know overcoming adversity and things like that and and yeah I got I got accepted and it was fab it was all like proper secretive and um, it was such an exciting experience and then obviously alongside that I was part of the Paralympic Inspiration Programme as well which um, sort of gave you an insight into what it was like to be a Paralympian it was run by the British Paralympic Association and they were just giving an insight into people who were potential Paralympians coming up and and yeah we got to go behind the scenes a bit we got to go to the holding camp before the games and then we got to go into the village itself and it's all like super secretive super like high security and just on a humongous scale like especially at home games like the things that were there the um you know the I guess of GB flags everywhere it just like it just proper gave me that like buzz I suppose
0: yeah, I guess it kind of plays into, you know, what Seb Co. You know, I mean, I remember when Tony Gray Thompson was on the pod earlier on in the series and she mentioned that, um, you know, when she was in Singapore for the bid and uh, like one of the IOC members came up to her at the end and said, we got something from the London bid that we didn't get from the Paris bid. And she said, what was that? And he said, emotion. And it was kind of like that inspiring the generation message, you know, bringing 30 kids across as part of the bid. You know, presentation and I guess that was kind of the implementation bit of what they said all the way back seven years before that I mean you know you had this taster then and then obviously you know I'll go into it you know you made, you made your major championship debut at the European champs in the following year and then you went to Toronto and you captained I'm right in saying yeah. Great Britain I mean to go from somebody who didn't have a clue about what they were doing in basketball in pretty what 2011 I'm saying to then yeah you know captaining Great Britain in 2014 that's a three-year gap I mean that's an incredible rise
1: yeah thank you <laughs> it is and I'm not sure to this day if I knew what I was doing in 2014 either um, <laughs> I, you know I was 20 at the time I was young I was learning constantly it it just amazes me now the growth that I've seen within myself from that young probably immature insecure Twenty-year-old to who I am now, um, so yeah. But I just the most amazing opportunity to to captain your country. Like I didn't even know if I was going to get selected to play and go to the tournament. Never mind be selected, uh, uh, be chosen for the captaincy. Um, but I guess my coach at the time saw something in me that I wasn't even sure about in myself. Like I knew growing up that I had leadership qualities, I suppose. But I think you're always you doubt yourself more than anyone would doubt you, you know, and I guess being sort of a strong woman wasn't always encouraged and it was all, it might've been portrayed as being bossy or, you know, you just want your own way. And, and to, you know, to all other people's credit, if they ever said that, I think there's truth in that as well. And that's what I think I've definitely grown in understanding a lot more about other people and their needs. And I think doing a psychology degree has massively helped that. Um, but yeah, it was a fabulous opportunity. Um, and yeah, I just, we, we, uh, we performed our best we ever had. We came fifth in that tournament, which might not sound like the, a great achievement, but for us, it was, you know, we'd kept come out of our pools in a different position than we'd ever had. And we'd given ourselves a really good chance of getting to the semifinals, unfortunately not making it, but then winning those next games to make sure that we came fifth the best that the girls the women's team had ever done so it was um something to be really proud of and ultimately from that um we got a lot more funding we got oh it, it maintained and we performed um which sport is all all about you know performing to make sure you maintain your funding um which was super important for us to to continue to grow
0: yeah i was about to ask kind of the history of women's wheelchair basketball you know in terms of you know, major tournaments, you know, European champs, world champs and Paralympics, you know, when you joined, did it kind of go to another level on what you kind of expected from what had happened before? Because I know obviously, you know, they reached the quarterfinals at London 2012, but were you kind of aware of the history before that as well?
1: Yeah absolutely. Um I think the history is really important in the sport to know where it's been um before you come along and um I wouldn't like to say it was because I joined the team at all but after London there was you know a sort of resurgence I suppose of um how do we make the program better how do we um adapt and um you know a lot of funding was given to us through UK Sport and the National Lottery which we're forever grateful for because it allowed us to go into a centralised training programme, which meant we were committed to being athletes every day. We were training every day. We made those choices outside of sport that meant um, we were giving it our all. Um, and we were very fortunate to be able to do that. So um, there was a big change, but that was through programme changes as well. And, and like I've mentioned, um, it really did help us go on from uh, you know seventh in the world, which was where they came in the London Paralympics, to um, so then fifth, and then obviously now we are current silver medalists at the world champs. So, uh, and fingers crossed, bringing home a Paralympic medal soon. Um, in the yeah, definitely. <laughs> Ho-
0: hopefully, hopefully we'll see. I mean, 2015 was a pretty big year for you because you went out to Beijing for the under 25, um, and you, you you won the gold there. You know, beating the Aussies in yeah. the final, which is for any any person in England or Britain is always a, a brilliant achievement if you see the Aussies get beaten in the final um and then you got the bronze in the European champs that year as well uh, was that the kind of year you know I, I, I know you went out to Rio and you know that was your first kind of big kind of yeah. taster for Paralympics but was 2015 the kind of year where you thought well I'm at this level now but I've now got to another level and I believe I can actually this is the foundation for I can get to a gold at a Paralympics kind of thing
1: yeah, I guess so. It was just always, I wouldn't ever say it was like one specific year. It just felt like we were always year by year creating momentum, moving forwards. Um, you know, it was never always all the highs. There were some real lows as well. Um, you know, we lost out in that um, in that semi-final in Worcester in 2015, European champs. Lost out, I think, by one point. Um, to go through to the final. So just devastating, you know, and then to come back and we won the bronze medal, yes, but I think, I don't know how many bronze medals we've had at European Championships, you know, for as long as the team's been around, I think we've won a bronze medal. Um, So there's been a fair few and it's, you know, bronze medals at Europeans, it's still an achievement, but it's when you've had a few, you want more. So it almost probably gave us that, extra bit of drive or momentum to lose out so closely um and want to continue to um progress and build obviously then into a Paralympic year so um so yeah we've just I I wouldn't say it's just one year it's just a continuation of building and and moving forwards
0: yeah and in, in terms of you know you touched in your um you know your sports psychology um university kind of uh Kind of career as well you know before Rio 2016 you had you know this incident where you had your ruptured bow if I'm writing saying yeah. a huge <laughs> mental test yeah. you know four years of work you're thinking well I'm nearly there I'm I'm almost there and then suddenly you get hit with a sledgehammer and okay. you know the perspective the perception the mindset at that point I'm guessing suddenly switched and you're thinking well, I might not make Rio 2016 anymore. Was that was that the abiding kind of thought in your mind at that point?
1: Definitely. Uh, it was as soon as I knew that I had to have surgery. So I'd ruptured my bowel. Um, and they tried to treat it without surgery first, but it didn't work. Um, and because of all the complications from previous surgeries and all the scar tissue and whatever surgery was just I no choice I had to have it and I remember going into the operating room before they put you under and crying to my mum like if I've, if I've got to have this which obviously I've got no choice my health's priority but I'm not going to Rio and I genuinely thought I wouldn't be able to recover in time to get there and that broke my heart honestly and um, just because like you say four years of hard work I'd committed my life to it I'd made choices and, you know, sacrifices of, you know, I didn't have the same student experience that anybody else does normally, you know, because I'd committed to being an athlete, those late nights out partying weren't an option for me because I was up training at six o'clock every morning. So, uh, you know, I'd, I'd changed my whole life to be able to do that. And the thought of it not going ahead and not being able to compete because my body had let me down, like it wasn't through any real fault of my own I suppose then then you could almost be angry at yourself but it was something internal that I really had no control over and that happened that yeah I just I I thought that it wasn't going to go ahead and I wasn't going to get back but it was late January that I had the operation so I still had like eight months seven months probably to get back and I had a really good plan put together with all the doctors and support staff that we have, um, and I had six weeks completely off because it was abdominal surgery. So I wasn't even allowed to put my arms above my head for twelve. Really? Weeks. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, yeah. For twelve weeks, I wasn't allowed my arms above my head to so to shoot, not an option. So my li- literally after six weeks complete rest, I then started to go back into some real like literally ten minutes a day of. Like little bit of pushing, little bit of dribbling, um, a little bit of gym work, like, but really low weight, like just nothing compared to what anybody else was doing. And it was a real testing time, but it really made me just look inward and think, I just need to do everything I can and follow this program to the letter um, to make sure that I've given myself the best chance to get back and, and compete. So, um, yeah, it was challenging, but it made me so strong mentally. And actually, I made it back and I got selected and I performed in Rio like my best tournament. I was the fittest I've ever been, I think. Um, And that was just through pure determination of wanting to be on that court.
0: I was about to say, from a mental point of view, was there any kind of point that, you know, when you had that, that you thought this is kind of 2010 In a smaller extent all over again and then when you got the opportunity you thought well i've got nothing to lose now let's just go for it and i'm guessing rio was pretty much adrenaline rushed and but also because you've been following kind of the letter of the law in in the program from that you kind of that focus and that determination and motivation kind of carried you through rio so you had adrenaline mixed with the focus And pinpoint accuracy essentially as well and I'm guessing the combination made you who you were mentally and physically
1: absolutely yeah I think mentally that side of it is so important and you know I did just stay as focused as I possibly could be in terms of doing everything right I suppose um to get there and and yeah it's it is the mind is such a powerful tool like I know that from my experience of psychology of learning about it but then also just my own personal experience of overcoming certain things in my life um, that actually is so powerful and if you trust it normally it'll it's got your back and you'll uh, you'll get through whatever it is that's, that's challenging you at the time
0: the loss to the us in the semi finals and if anyone knows you know what the states are like with basketball you know they they should just see what their programs are like mm-hmm. through netflix documentaries because there are mm-hmm. enough of them just just to show that um it 18 78 it was fairly close in terms of that scoreline then you know the bronze medal match against the dutch uh, you know 76 34 a bit I'm guessing at that point you were just thinking, oh, I, we, was it a sense that you put all the effort into the semi-final and you could have had nothing left for the for the bronze medal match?
1: Yeah, honestly, I think that was our final game. So, you know, playing that semi-final, we did give it absolutely yeah. everything. You rarely, rarely see those those scores in the women's wheelchair basketball game that's high scoring for us to get over you know to score 78 points normally you're pretty sure that you've won that game so we both both teams shot the lights out and we did a great job and um, it was one of the best games I've played in because it was just nonstop, um and it was just that adrenaline you talked about was just sky high and I was you know it was so disappointing to lose um And then I just don't think, I don't even think we went into the bronze medal game giving ourselves a chance. Like this is something really, really particular, but every game that I'd gone into, I'd done my hair properly. Like I'd really focused and prepared on like looking the part. I know that might sound silly, but I'd made an effort with my hair. (laughs) And in the bronze medal game, I'd not even bothered. I'd just put it in like a bun, a messy bun. (laughs) <laughs> and then was something like, it might sound really silly, but it was just, I guess, the mentality around that, which I check myself on now because that wasn't good enough from, from me. Like, I should have been better at the time. But I think the whole team, we'd sort of, the Dutch were just, they should have been in the final. They absolutely bombed out in their semi-final and they didn't do us any help at all because we should have been playing Germany in the bronze medal game. And I think had we been going up against them, we'd have stood a really good chance of of winning a bronze medal. But we were going up against the Dutch, who at the time were just our absolute nemesis, really. Couldn't find a way to beat them, had absolutely terrible starts of our games and just we're always trying to claw it back and I just think we knew that going into the game our heads were down the the vibe in the changing room wasn't the same as it was going into any other game so I think we've learned a lot from that me personally and and I don't want to speak for the rest of the team but I think we go into games a lot more prepared and and geared up I suppose having had that experience um but yeah I think you're right we probably gave our all in the semis and we're a bit um we're a bit just downhearted <laughs> <with the
0: game. laughs> yeah and, and i mean i'm not wanting to mention the dutch again but i will um that you know 2018 the world champs again they you know they were better when it mattered in in, in the final i yeah. mean are they the team to watch in tokyo or are the us kind of as good at wheelchair basketball as they are in terms of uh able bodied basketball as well
1: honestly i think we can't like just single out one team anymore. I think we did that before and had a bit of too much focus on the Dutch and every single team will creep up on you and and absolutely play the lights out and take a game from you. So you can't take anything for granted. You know, Canada, really strong. USA, Germany, you know, Spain are even coming up really strong now. Um, so you can't take any game just like as, as a token win um, because that, you know, then you've lost the game. Ultimately, if you go in thinking, "Oh, this is easy," and um, you, you you've lost the game already. So, um, but yeah, we've definitely got our sights on the big. You know, I think the strongest teams are in Europe. I think it's us, the Dutch and Germany. I think are real contenders for Paralympic medals, as are you know other other countries, of course. Um, but I think what we're doing is is really strong, and um, I think it'll be a, a tough fight in the European zone. <laughs>
0: And, and just being out in Rio as well, you know, you ha- I'm guessing you had your parents and kind of friends go out there as well, you know, from the point in 2010 where, you know, you know, they thought potentially, I guess, that you could lose your life. Mm. And to go from that point to six years later, out in Rio, to then seeing you compete at the Paralympic Games, not the Olympic Games, of course, but, you know, it's pretty much exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, that must have been, I guess, reflecting now that must have been for them, uh, not just uh, an emotional thing, you know, just 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 to see you out into the court, but also to see what you have represented for other people to look up to you now. And actually, I'll talk about the Inspire Generation programme a bit bit later on. But in terms of, you know, inspiring the next lot of kids to get through, you've kind of done that now you've been at the Paralympics.
1: Yeah, I think the you know, I did a lot of it because I wanted to make my parents proud. And that is something that I hold quite dear to me is knowing how hard it was for them. I I think it was harder for them than it was for me, than it was for anybody else seeing their little girl, you know, in a hospital bed fighting for a life. I just can't imagine it. And I'll only be able to imagine it if and when I have my own kids and understand that, but God, it must just be the most gut wrenching, heartbreaking thing. I just can't even imagine. So honestly, I, I spent a lot of my time trying to, um, I guess, make their lives easier and uh, prove myself, not to them, I suppose, but yeah, but, you know, make them happy, make them proud, make them see that I was still successful and still had an amazing life ahead of me. Um, And I guess that all came to a point, I suppose, when we were all in Rio. I had a massive entourage with me. I loved it. My cousins even came, some of my (laughs) friends that were um that were traveling out in South America, stopped over for a couple of days, planned their trip around, seeing some of the games. So it was amazing. And I guess yeah, that's it's a real special moment when you can look up to a crowd and see those special people that are in your lives at that time, um, knowing that you've sort of done full circle at that point, you know, six years on as it was in Rio. Um, that you've you've really made something of yourself, and and like I said at the start of the podcast, I'm I'm not ashamed to say that I'm 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 really proud of how far I've come.
0: I mean, you seem to be incredibly well travelled. I mean, <laughs> in terms of just where you've been, in terms of the games, Beijing, yeah. uh, you know, Rio, you know, America as well on holiday in the US. But I'm guessing there are. I mean, I looked at your Instagram page actually, and I'm guessing there are other places because most of your holiday snap seems to be in tropical islands, kind of in the middle of the Pacific, (laughs) you know, like looking at the psychology side of that, you know, does that help you in terms of competing, having that relaxation time? And then, you know, I guess the obvious question is where's the best place you've been?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, honestly, I can't live without travel. I don't think, I think whatever I do in the future, it has to involve travel in some description because I think just being in other cultures, Seeing new places, trying different things just gives me so much energy. And I think I've learned that along, I suppose, my journey through life. <laughs> um, that you you learn the things that make you tick, don't you? And that's something really special to me. It's something I'm missing so much in this pandemic, you know, not being able to travel. But um hopefully, you know, fingers crossed it'll happen soon. Um, but yeah, I mean, traveling for my sport has been incredible because you know, you you're so catered you're so well catered for, so well looked after. It's um it is really amazing. I feel really fortunate that I've been able to do that. But also traveling, you know, with one of my best friends, Amy, who's on the team as well, it's quite convenient because we get the same time off. So when that's you know, pretty cool. Like, yeah, exactly. It's not someone else who have you know we've got to like plan our time off. We get the same time off. So It's really good. That's obviously not the only reason I like to go over. But but yeah, we've been all over the place. I think one of my favorite trips was um, we went to Miami uh, for a few days and then we went to the Bahamas. And honestly, it was just incredible because Miami is such a lively, amazing place. Like we felt like superstars there because the Americans are just, they just love you. And I think just, I just, they're so like, compliment, they compliment When me. they
0: say love you, how, how do you mean? Is it the accent? Because I know that the, the, the American think, yeah. way of life with the British is essentially James Bond, the Queen and tourist yeah. attractions in London. You know, that's kind of the philosophy, yeah. I think. Like, with you know, when you say love, what <laughs> do you mean?
1: I think it must be the accent... It's also possibly the blonde hair. Um, And I think being in a chair attracts people. It attracts attention, whether that's the right attention or the wrong attention, obviously, is a completely different conversation. Um, But I think it is it is something that people look at and, you know, not necessarily always for the right reasons. But um, but yeah, we got you know, it's it's nice to be complimented I suppose so we always talk about that trip like it really boosted our egos um but Miami as a place itself is just incredible like the lifestyle there is I'd love to live there on a star island is basically where all the like celebs live and have these amazing houses and we went on a little boat tour around the area and oh just fabulous but you've got to have about 50 million pounds to even consider buying one so did don't you, think, uh, don't think you- that's the
0: did you did you point. did you meet any of the celebs out there? Get lucky at any point, or
1: no? No, unfortunately not. Um, but we had a great time, and it's probably one of my favourite places that I've that I've been to visit. I
0: was about to say it must be whether that was the first time you've been back to the US since 2010. But was it weird going back to the US for the first time since the accident?
1: Yeah. No. Not. I mean. I've been back a fair few times um, to where it happened, actually, because I've got a family that live there and we went back for various reasons. And I um, I went to the hospital where it was. I went and met the surgeons who basically were my lifesavers. Um, and uh, and yeah, got to spend some time with them and they were incredible people. Um, so it wasn't weird. I, I wanted to go back. I wanted to do it. I went back to where the crash happened. Also, I think just almost for like peace of mind to try and remember what happened or I, I guess maybe a bit of closure I'm not sure uh, but I just knew it was something that I wanted to do um, but no it wasn't weird it was almost therapeutic I suppose.
0: Mm, I guess it was it some kind of closure or is that just pushing it a bit too far or was there kind of an element of that?
1: Yeah involved? I think definitely an element of closure for sure and um, Yeah, I think, yeah, it probably was some of that because I think I felt a bit of relief having gone back and sort of seen where it happened. It's like that, what I mentioned earlier about um, trying to figure out what happened when you don't remember, like having that memory. I didn't have a memory, but at least now I can picture a place and I can picture where it happened. So if I am ever thinking about it, it's a bit more clear than it was. So um, I guess, yeah, that was probably one of the reasons.
0: actually I've got here you know as an athlete I know how to adapt to workouts or do my own I'm very lucky if I wasn't an athlete the only option would be to go out for a push go out of my front door and that's not possible now that comes from you know a study which has shown that physical activity among disabled people has fallen with only 23% able to exercise for 30 minutes five times a week last autumn you know you're quite vocal about this kind of stuff um, where's that come from is it just because of who you were as a kid growing up and now you're feeling well this is just not right in terms of what we could potentially be doing?
1: Hmm. I think I'm just quite passionate about um equality in every sense um I don't think you should have an experience of life that is less than someone else can due to your disability, your gender, your race, where you know where you're from I suppose um so I guess that's what um, annoys me the most about that is is that the and also I guess the lack of representation bothers me a lot because I'm in a sport where you know the basketball equivalents maybe um, well you definitely see in the US are even the difference between men and women um, is just stark. Never mind uh, you know men or women a- against the disabled sport version um so I guess I'm just trying to fight for people to take notice of our sport um because it's a sport in its own right it doesn't have to be labeled a disability sport it's just a sport in its own right and we use chairs as our equipment um so I guess I'm just always trying to fight that battle um around getting the exposure around that but ultimately what really irks me I suppose is that the access to um I guess disabled people's access to fitness, to gyms, is a lot more restricted than the non-disabled person. Um, And the lived experience of disabled people is equally as important as the lived experience of non-disabled people. And that's something that just bothers me, I suppose. Um, I've had it so many times where I I love going out for meals. That's one of my favorite things to do with my friends, my boyfriend, whatever it is. Um, I love doing that, I think it's amazing, but some restaurants I want to go to have me going through the kitchens, going through the back door, um, using the disabled toilet that's filled, um, they just use it as a cupboard and a storage room, Um, and it just really irritates me, because that shouldn't be the case, we're in 2021, we should be valuing the disabled consumer as much as we value the non-disabled consumer, so yeah I guess that's a little bit of a rant but um, <laughs> I guess that's where my passion comes from because I've lived it you know I've experienced it and like I said in the article I am really lucky that I've been educated as an athlete um, to be able to adapt workouts and things like that and but I know that you're, you're a person who isn't an athlete who doesn't want to become a Paralympian but still wants to be active and exercise there are barriers in place for for those people. And I know there's a lot of people online doing great content for disabled people. There is that out there, but I just wish we could see it in the non-disabled community being more inclusive in everything they do, because ultimately their voices currently, which is a problem in itself, are heard louder than ours are at the moment. So I would love to see that change and and just to make exercise equal for, for all the opportunity to exercise equal for everybody.
0: Well, this is the thing, you know, isn't it? That, you know, since London 2012, disability, you know, coverage in terms of the Paralympics is shot through the roof. You know, you just need to look at Channel 4 and to see everything around that. But when it comes down to the day-to-day, everyday Joe in the streets and their rights in terms of where the country has to go compared to where, you know, you are in in a bubble, essentially, in that Paralympic period. But outside of that cycle, you know... We, we can talk about coverage of sports outside of athletics, let's say that's one aspect that, you know, I think the most important one and, you know, you've just touched on it and, you know, we've had loads of people who have been on this podcast who have been in similar situations to you. And that well, it shows how endemic the problem is, I guess, um, you know, how as a country, we still have a long way to go in terms of pay gap in terms of accessibility. And, you know, I, I guess, you know, looking forward, where do you think you want to see it go? What's kind of the level that, you know, you would be happy with in terms of um, some of the accessibility? I mean, obviously, with restaurants, it's pretty obvious you're going to go through the front door. But what what other kind of things would you kind of want to see?
1: Mm. Oh, God, such a wide question. It gone. is a
0: very broad question. Sorry um, about that. No,
1: no it's fine. Um, I think the... The one thing I think is that's important is that disabled people are thought of. Um, that is something that I think a lot of disabled people would feel comfortable and happy with if that was the level that some thought had been gone had gone into how a disabled person is going to access this how are they going to see this how is it how are they going to be represented and ultimately I think when decisions are made that involve disabled people disabled people should be in those decision making roles and they or at least Um, consulting on them because they have that lived experience if you don't have a lived experience that you can relate to then you shouldn't be making those decisions you should be involving panels of disabled people who can you know because I'm a wheelchair user but I don't necessarily understand what it's like for someone who's an amputee you know or someone who's blind I obviously can um You know, I can sympathize with that to a certain extent because there are certain barriers placed on both groups. But I'm not in a position to comment, really. So I wouldn't want to. I can speak for wheelchair users and that sort of access. um, But I'd love big groups of us to be able to get involved with, you know, designing of hotels or restaurants or, you know, gyms massively. Because exercise, we've seen through this pandemic how important it is to be able to get out, move your body for mental health reasons as well as physical health reasons. Um, So that would be something that I guess um, if I had a magic wand, I would wave. And and I think that disabled people to be at the at the front of people's minds when um, designing things and, and planning things.
0: I guess in terms of, you know, the facilities that you've got at, you know, if anyone doesn't know, it's the English Institute of Sports in Sheffield. It's an amazing facility. Um, You've got access to that. You know, you've got access to national lottery funding. You've got access to huge amounts of things that other people who wouldn't be involved in the kind of Paralympic movement wouldn't have accessibility to. Now you've been involved in all the things that you've seen, whereas previously, you know, starting up, you would have probably been in the situation where a lot of people are now that you're in a position to go, well, it can be better, I guess. And um, the evidence that you've had in terms of the facilities, I mean, I've been to EIS as well. It's an amazing, it's an amazing place um, that you you can see where we can go.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's the thing. It can happen. It just might take a little bit more effort. And I think that's what people are reluctant to do. Almost, It might take a bit more education around planning a gym session for someone with a disability um that I just think people yeah it's a a reluctancy which ultimately is the real thing that needs tackling um and it can be done it really can be done there's some amazing places out there that are fully accessible and even the I went to Worcester University um and that blew my mind because it was when I went to see it and I would viewed a lot of other universities who won't be named um but it was the whole thing of going in through the back door, through some other building to get to your classroom. Um, and Worcester was all about, you will have the same experience as your non-disabled friends and cohort, and you will you will do the same thing as them. You will go on the same journey through university as them. And that meant so much to me because I hated, at, even at school, having to go somewhere else whilst my friends were going in through the normal door, which we all went through. Um, so i think it's that sort of thing and and that's really important is because that's inclusion that is the heart of inclusion is every experience um being equal and having at least been thought of um yeah
0: and i guess you know looking at um that thought process in terms of you know the next generation um you know this new inspire generation program that wheelchair basketball have recently launched in the past You know, week or so. Um, What's your involvement in that been? How's that going? And where do you want to see that kind of go in in the future?
1: Yeah, it's a super exciting programme. I mean, we're hoping to double participation and get wheelchair basketball into the local communities, which I was fortunate enough to benefit from. As I said, it was 10 minutes away from my house where I started playing, but not everybody is. And I think we need these community activators, which you can apply to become on inspiregeneration.com, um, those community activators are vital in providing that service and making um, wheelchair basketball and just disability sport in general, making it more well-known, becoming an ally and a supporter of disabled sport. Um, and I think it's it's going to change how we see disabled sport. And I think it's really, really amazing what uh, basketball are doing. And I guess my involvement really is I've done a some work on it behind the scenes and I'm very conscious that sport you know for me isn't going to last forever in terms of retirement will come at some point so I'm conscious that I want to have a lot of experience in other areas and so working on this behind the scenes with the with the staff at British wheelchair basketball is um you know I've been able to gain some really cool insights into how to plan things like this so that's cool Um, but also I've sort of been doing a lot of these interviews on it as well, which has been really exciting. And just getting the message out there that wheelchair basketball is going to be coming to a local leisure centre, hopefully near you. Um, and that if you want to apply to be a communi- community activator, then you can, and you can help facilitate these wheelchair basketball sessions.
0: Well, you got five live to come after <laughs> this. So
1: um,
0: I won't keep you too long. Um, but just to finish off, um, Sophie, amazing episode really is, uh, has been um you know tokyo is obviously on the horizon whether it goes ahead or not hopefully it should Mm. you know at this point really i think you know it's pretty more likely to happen than not but you know still that doubt um what's your build up to that like at the minute
1: so we're really fortunate that under the elite athlete exemption we're still able to train at the moment um, but we're being really safe we're still distancing and um, we're testing twice a week and we have real rigorous measures in place to make sure everything is safe and and clean you know every 15 minutes we're having breaks to clean and sanitize everything even equipment and our and balls and things like that so um yeah super important that that is number one priority but and our training's had to adapt, you know, everyone's had to adapt in these times. Um, so we have adapted our training to be able to um, stick to those guidelines. Um, But we're progressing and we're doing a, an amazing job. The spirit's really high within the team and, and we're still having a great time training. So I'm just really looking forward to actually playing a game again. Because it's been about a year, it, I think it'll be a year in at the middle of February when we last played our our game um so yeah i just can't wait to get back on court but we're really working hard on lots of individual skills and and hopefully they'll they'll transfer into real success through to tokyo
0: perfect well we're seven eight months away anyway um now and you haven't had a rupture bell no. so that yeah. that is that is that- what good
1: thing that's a positive yeah i'm think you know fingers crossed that that stays that way
0: (laughs) (laughs) um sophie before we end i always do these with these uh podcasts anyway if you've got a message for anyone who and i guess this plays into the program a message for anyone who kind of you know wants to be in the position that you're in um and is growing up wanting to play basketball or even you know tennis netball or hockey as you've had uh, as a kid um what would that message be
1: oh i just think for me, it's about believing in yourself. Um, it's about believing that you, you really can set your mind to anything, you know, have big dreams and set really big goals um and just go for them. Believe that you can achieve, I think, is my number one message.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Sum Essex Lad and the Paralympian. Please leave us a rating comment and make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. That means you'll get instant messages and when a new episode will drop directly into your lap. Also give us a follow on social media. On Twitter it's at EssexLadPara and Instagram is at EssexLadParalympian. You can also like our Facebook page. Just type in EssexLad and the Paralympian. Farewell and we'll see you soon.